The Wild Honey Collective is a podcast for cultural worker bees who pollinate ideas about how we can live in greater integrity with our self, health, and wealth and alchemize those ideas into cooperative, artful action. Through conversation and gathering, we seek to learn from the wisdom of ecosystems to explore the intersections of land, food, and health. And we look specifically to the queendom of the wild honeybees, who craft cooperative economies of female alchemists, holding an intricate relational knowledge of their homelands and transforming nectar into gold medicine, honey, to feed the next generation. In the process, they pollinate the future fruits that will feed an ecosystem of which we are a piece. Embracing our teachers, we can discover ways of being that help us reclaim earthcrafts and feed our bodies, hearts, and spirits, and alchemize our patterns of harm into wholeness within our personal and collective places of belonging in the queendom. Today, we have Ben Wise, owner of Wise Cycles, a mobile bike shop that empowers people who want to use bikes as a practical mode of transportation for themselves and their families to be less reliant on fossil fuels and more connected to their communities through cycling. Ben has lived in Harrisonburg, Virginia for over 20 years with his wife and family and is a father of three who focuses specifically on reclaiming the value of so-called clunkers or bikes other bike shops won't bother to fix and empowering families to bike together safely from a young age, making biking accessible for more people who do not and cannot drive cars. Our conversation touches on both grief and joy and dives into the spiritual root of sacrificing our comfort for our collective well-being. So Ben, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. It is great to have you here today on the new moon in Libra, starting a new little chapter here. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, who are we talking about when we talk about cyclists? People who ride their bicycle can look a certain way, but what kind of value systems and motivational drives are we talking about when we're talking about the kind of cycling that you try to promote? So for the purpose of the conversation we're about to embark on, I think we're focused on bikes as transportation. The bicycle is a sort of interesting tool in that there are people who own a $20,000 custom bicycle that's exclusively used for competition or recreation. And they put it on the top of their car and they drive across the country to a race or something. And there's nothing about that framework that's any different than a, 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 you know, a person who enjoys skiing or golf or rock climbing or shuffleboard or whatever their form of recreation is. And humans have always recreated and recreation makes sense, but that's not what we're talking about today when we talk about the bicycle. We're talking about people who 
aren't choosing to ride their bike for transportation as an alternative to driving a vehicle, um, an electric car or a gasoline powered car or some kind of a car or pickup truck. Mm-hmm. So this is about commuter cycling. Yes. Today. Pedal power. Pedal power. Pedal power. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, you've been one of the people who has inspired me to commit to that more. And along with you, our mutual friend Tom Benevento and Cornelius and um, really growing my physical and moral power to say that as much as possible, I'm going to choose bicycle in substitute of cars for our planet and for our bodies. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Thank you for joining the community of cyclists who ride for transportation. Absolutely. I mean, you make it really accessible. So a major theme that we're exploring on the show is how we live our values. How does advocating for bikes, not only by choosing them as your main mode of movement, but also fixing and reclaiming them, reflect how you put your own values in practice? So as I live in our society, there are many things that break my heart. I I live next to an Air Force base, like next to, like two blocks away from the runway for three years. And I watched these planes that were carrying destructive payloads take off and land and take off and land. Um, Those were planes that carried out um, flights in the Middle East that destroyed communities. And I felt impotent to change anything about that. And maybe we could have a conversation about really whether I had power in that situation or not to change that, the reality of what happened on that Air Force base. But I felt like I had no agency to actually stop what was going on there. So for me, partly the bicycle is something where I still have a choice, right? It's about a place in my life where there's something that is broken about how we relate to the the rest of the natural world and how we relate to each other that I can do differently. And so it's about agency. It's about doing something that I have the power to change. And then I chose my vocation of being a bike mechanic and being a bike advocate because I wanted to make that resource available to other people when they were ready to to embark on that journey. Mm-hmm. And how do you encourage people who are afraid because of the risks of riding their bikes or they feel that there are other barriers to incorporating it into their lifestyle? Yeah, so the risks can be real. I remember having a conversation in the beginning of April, I think this is 2003, George W. Bush was president then. Um, 9-11 wasn't very far in the rearview mirror. We were dispatching large numbers of American troops to the Middle East. There was warfare and bombing. And I thought about all the soldiers, the young men and women who were doing that, uh, that work and being sent to those places to do these things and that they were putting their life on the line 
for their job, right? And I told someone, I said, you know, riding my bike is dangerous, but why should I be no less willing to take some risks for what I believe than these other people who are taking risks for what they believe? It's a completely different philosophical framework, but are we willing to like do something dangerous if we believe it? So like a week later, it was tax day, 2003, I was hit by a pickup truck and sustained some some uh, injuries that I was in physical therapy for my injuries for eight months. It's intensive physical therapy. It took me a long time to recover. But as I was laying in the road in the pool of my own blood, I laughed in my head and I said, so this, this is sort of the... Uh, <laughs> The test, if you really believe this, right? Like it's sort of, like I just told someone I need to be willing. I need to be willing to take the risk. And a week later, here I am, you know, <laughs> laying in a pool of my own blood. It's like, oh, I guess they heard me. <laughs> so I don't think that's necessarily the way, you know, I'm not trying to say that it was really a test, but it was a big thing for me to live through that. And... I got back on my bike because that that commitment was a commitment that I held deeply. So I understand the fear and I think we all have to come to terms with that in our own way. But the irony is that if suddenly in the in the United States 50% of vehicle trips are for 3 miles or less. So envision what our society would look like if suddenly every environmentalist I'm not asking for everybody who, who drives, but just everyone who claims to believe that climate change is real, that claims that we are in an ecological predicament, and that claims to be an environmentalist. What if all able-bodied people in that category would say, okay, for every trip that's three miles or less, I will walk or I will ride my bike. Suddenly it would be safer for all of us. Yeah. Because governments would build better infrastructure, um, cars would be more aware of us. The statistics bear out that as we have more and more people, it becomes safer. Yeah. So we can do it. We can. I've, <laughs> I've lived in the Netherlands and, for a short time and have experienced it. And yeah, it's just exactly what you just described. All of those three mile trips are just on bike. And, and they don't wear out. helmets. They don't. None of them They laugh helmets. at you. They make fun of you if you wear helmets. <laughs> they don't wear helmets. They also make fun of you if you have a fancy bike. They're oh, like, yeah. oh, ho, ho, like it's so fancy. Yeah. They ride old clunkers. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a fan of old clunkers as this long is, as they get you where you're going. Yeah, this is a kindred spirit for the old clunkers. So... Emissions from vehicles are the largest source of emissions for the United States that are causing climate change. Yet we continue to consume fossil fuel-based forms of movement quite regularly. Seems like a little bit of cognitive dissonance, and I know that you think about the psychological and philosophical aspect of why do we still keep driving when we could choose otherwise, and on a larger scale, why do we not have a mass movement for more accessible public transportation infrastructure in our country? So I sometimes think that the reason we don't use our bikes is because cars are fast and easy. 
and you think about other things in our life, why don't people use the old-fashioned lawnmowers that have the reel on them? Well, because a riding lawnmower is fast and easy. Why do people use a clothes dryer that plugs into the wall inside the house instead of a clothesline? Well, the mechanical fossil fuel or electric power clothes dryer is fast and easy. Mm -hmm. So we are a culture of fast and easy. And the bicycle requires something of you. When you get to a hill, you run out of breath and you sweat. Uh, if you have a special hairdo, sometimes <laughs> your hairdo gets messed up, right? So there are, you, you can't wear maybe the same outfit or the same shoes. So there are all these things that aren't easy and the bicycle is slower. So sometimes I think it just boils down to fast and easy but I think it also boils down sometimes to the fact that people just haven't, there's fear. People haven't been exposed to how good it makes you feel to actually start to connect your values to your behaviors. Like I sometimes think if people felt how good that feels to connect your values to your behaviors, that, that more people would do it. So I think it's really multifaceted. I don't know what the, what the actual thing is, but mm -hmm. we, I was about your age when I started. Um, so I'm in my late 40s. I'm pushing 50. Hey. That's what I like to say. I'm pushing 50. I just round up. <laughs> um, and I was in my mid-20s when I started working as a bicycle mechanic. And I was so confident that we were just on the cusp of like a major transition away from the assumption of the personal automobile. I, my, I, would, I had a high level of confidence that we'd have all this information about why we should bike and then we'd just start to do it. Well, as a society, we have all the information and we're still not doing it. So I no longer think that this is about a lack of information. It's something else. Yeah. Which is very much why I've wanted to um, take this direction, this conversation in the direction of the spiritual and moral and philosophical aspect. Like what you just said is a huge question that this podcast hopes to explore. How good it feels to actually align your values with the way that you live in your behavior, in your daily mundane lived experience. And I think that it's very... Um, empowering to be around people who show you you can do this when when people around you who you admire model for you whatever excuses just like throw them aside and do it and that's what got me into the lifestyle of commuter cycling um is that people were like hey you know like we're committed to this and we just we just make it happen. And a lot of us are um, impoverished of any of those kinds of models in our life for whatever we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. So for starters, let me say I hate wearing these masks Yeah. because you can't see me smile, right? <laughs> <laughs> so some of the stuff you said made me smile. And I just say that because you can't see me. Yep. Correctly. Same. <laughs> but we can see our eyes, and eyes speak too. Yes, right? and eyebrows. Eyebrows speak. So we're speaking <laughs> to each other in various ways. 
And I think, yeah, I mean, I, ta I told my kids this morning that I was coming to do this and I carry a lot of grief. I carry a lot of grief that I'm part of a culture that, that can't live into a more wholesome and life-giving framework for how to exist. And I need a way to live that will allow me to maintain my sanity. And the bicycle is part of that. It is a spiritual discipline. I remember riding to a Christmas party some years ago. It was on Christmas Eve. It was like pouring down rain. It's raining as hard as it possibly can. It was 35 degrees outside. So I got dressed up and I got on my bicycle and I rode across town to this party. So then I got there and I'm on the porch and I'm peeling off all my wet clothes and changing clothes. And like, it was a miserable bike ride. But at some level, like that, it, that discipline of like going to this party on my bike in the miserable cold pouring rain made me feel better. I, it's hard to it's hard to sort of wrap your brain around why that makes me feel better, but it's like the pattern, the lifestyle patterns we choose in the society that I've grown up in cause suffering in the world. And if I'm not willing to make some changes, then how do I make sense of that of that grief, that anguish that I carry inside myself about what I represent in my lifestyle because my lifestyle is too consumptive. I own not one car, but two. One of them was given to me. So it's this, it's this question of like longing for something better and feeling grief. And then what are the disciplines we have that are an expression of, of those things that are central to our very identity and our ethical framework. And for me, the bicycle is an expression of that. So recently, uh, August 19th to be exact, I was thinking about other parts of my life where I could have agency, where I could choose something that would, what are the ways I can expand my practice? So I decided to start showering in cold water. But I wanted to have a friend who would participate in this with me. So I went to my friend Tom and I said, Tom, will you commit to taking cold showers? And we're gonna do this for six weeks. Well, now the six weeks has passed and I'm gonna see how long I can carry on, but the water in the water tower is getting colder. <laughs> so we'll see what I'm doing in like November, December, January. But now I like to say I'm taking cold showers with my friend Tom. <laughs> Although his teenage son was shocked about that language. <laughs> he, he was like, Dad, you can't say that. <laughs> but I'm taking cold showers with my friend Tom. And I hate the cold showers. They're not much fun. But as I stand there waiting to blast myself with cold water, I think about that sort of discipline of subjecting myself to something that's a small level of discomfort and of having that sort of be a moment. Like, is it, it's sort of a, a prayerful moment. It's sort of a moment when I acknowledge in my own mind that, that uh, I have a comfortable and extravagant lifestyle 
at the expense of the environment and other people around the world. And so that, that cold shower is a little bit like riding bike, although a lot less fun. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you have a buddy. <laughs> at right? least I have someone to shower with, right? <laughs> Yeah, we got to have some laughter in this, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there needs to be humor some, somewhere along with laughter along with the tears. Right, like right wrapped up together. Yeah. So we're always being presented with the next alternative, sustainable, ethical replacement to the harmful things we consume on a daily basis to live this comfortable, luxurious lifestyle. How do you see carbon-intensive lifestyle choices being rebranded in a greenwashed fashion, with a greenwashed label, or to say an environmental quote-unquote label, and actually adopted by environmentally conscious people as ways of making themselves feel better about making the same inherent choices? So I think whether or not people have come up with a way to sort of articulate this, I think a lot of people feel grief and anguish. But maybe they found a way to hold that at bay and it doesn't it doesn't register in their consciousness and in their heart. Um, so many environmentalists would articulate that they want the same thing that I do. But there are different ways to think about how we get there. And recently, uh, a friend of mine um, bought an electric car, and I got angry. I got really angry. And so let me just put in parentheses here a recent article I read in The Economist. The Economist had an article about the five biggest mining companies in the world. So we're familiar with critiques of the oil majors, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, so on. And there's all kinds of critiques about what they do and the impact they have on the world and the destructive force that they are. But we also have the mining majors. And The Economist was saying the mining majors are making a big mistake in their business model right now. They are making lots of money and they are returning huge profits to their investors. Instead of giving so much profit to their shareholders, they should give their shareholders less returns and they should plow all of their rich rewards into expanding mining operations so we can have more resources to build out the green economy. Hmm. So for me, that that's a completely wrong way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Like instead of trying to maintain the status quo of our lifestyle, we should start having a simpler and simpler and simpler lifestyle and start collectively in community asking what that looks like and how to do it. But if we're gonna have electric cars we need the exact same infrastructure for an electric car that we need for a Cadillac Escalade. We need the same parking deck, the same roads, the same everything. And we promote the status quo of how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. And instead of destroying the planet 
through the oil majors will destroy the planet through the mining majors. And if you do just a little bit of research into what some of these mines do and how they affect the ecosystems of the communities where the mines exist, they're terrible. And the human rights abuses in some of those settings are heartbreaking. And so for me, the electric car represents a vote for the status quo. It's a vote for exploitative economic systems that hurt people and hurt the planet. Now, I rode here today on a 1992 Schwinn High Plains that was shipped across the country from Taiwan. It's made of steel, which was mined somewhere. It has, I was thinking as I rode across town, there's brass on my bike, there's copper in the front hub, there's aluminum, there's steel, there's plastic. My bicycle requires some industrial systems and mines too, but it's a lot less. It is a lot, lot less. Yeah. And so it's a step in a really, really different direction. So I know people who used to ride their bikes, but once they bought an electric car, their bike got parked. And so that's, that's, that's wrong. That's not a choice that honors the earth and that honors the human community. Yeah. And while we're on this note, um, something we've talked about a lot is, you know, how much we deserve to move about wherever we please across the entire planet. And when we talk about riding our bikes, we're talking about a local scale of how far we can expect to travel in a given amount of time, like in our free time. How do you reconcile that with the way that many of us travel and expect to get places? Well, it's interesting this morning as I was thinking about this podcast, I thought, so since I graduated from high school, how many miles have I pedaled? Um, and I'm pushing 50 and I calculated but that by the time I'm 50, I will have ridden about 100,000 miles. <laughs> right? And but so, you're not giving out like a car at 100,000, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I might be going stronger at 50 because I rode those 100,000 miles, right? I reckon, yeah. Right, so, I, you know, I'm probably fitter and stronger at 50 than if I had been, if I'd driven all those miles in a car. But 100,000 miles is not that far in a vehicle. You think about, I don't even know what the statistics are now, but I think the average American travels maybe eight or 10,000. Don't quote me. I shouldn't even say a statistic, but look up how many miles a year the average American drives a car. And it doesn't take you from the time you're 18 till the time you're 50 to get to 100,000 miles, mm-hmm. right? And so... It, it's just you log miles much more slowly when you're pedaling them and you live closer to home. And so I've been thinking about my kids. I'm, I'm a father of three. And I think so when my kids graduate from high school, do I tell them, well, we have Blue Ridge. We got Mass Nutton Technical Center. We have Bridgewater College. We have EMU. We have JMU. There are five educational institutions within pedaling distance of our house. And instead of applying for colleges all over the place, what if you would apply for only colleges that you can ride to? Yeah. 
-hmm. Like that would be different. But that's not in our cultural makeup yet because we need to pursue the quote unquote best possible career or the, I don't know, you know, experience. The best experience. I mean, college experiences, it would feel like a loss to to your kids maybe and definitely to people who observed from the outside to say what a shame that they couldn't go somewhere new but yeah what is education for and when when is a good time what if they just took the time to cycle across the country right before they started school right 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 so i think at some point the question of a bike tour for young people comes into the conversation. So I did a little like math, right? So if I took a bunch of people in their late teens, early twenties, who wanted to do a bike tour and they said, okay, I'm gonna block out a year to ride bike. And they, they would ask me for my wisdom. And I said, well, what about if you only ride for 50 weeks? Cause doesn't everyone need two weeks vacation? Mm -hmm. I say, okay, so we're going to ride for 50 weeks out of 52. We'll we'll take two weeks vacation. Well, what if you only ride five days a week because everybody needs a weekend? So the young people are like, okay, we'll only ride five days a week because everybody needs a two-day weekend. So they're going to ride from Harrisonburg across the country to the Pacific Ocean and back and, you know, choose a route that's about 7,000 miles. They would only need to ride 28 miles a day to get there and back in a year with two days a week off and two weeks of vacation. So one thing that's sort of amazing is if you just plug away at it, if you just get on your bike and plug away at it, in a year, you can do an amazing thing on your bike. You can see the entire country mile by mile. Mile by mile. So right now, if a bunch of environmentalist kids were asking me for my input, I would say, so on your bike tour, you should stop in Thacker Pass, Nevada. There's currently a big protest there. Well, it's not a very big protest because it's a bunch of indigenous people and it's not a protest of oil resources. But there's a protest in Thacker Pass, Nevada over a lithium mine. And this lithium mine is on land considered sacred by some of the uh, Indian tribes that live in the area. And so it might be interesting on their bike tour to go to that protest and to talk to the indigenous people who are trying to stand up for their land, for their sacred land. And then if they really want to, maybe they could go up to British Columbia. There's the Ferry Creek protest that's going on right now where where there's indigenous people and others who are protesting these 2,000-year-old cedars that are being cut down. And... The Royal Canadian Mounted Police are being as heavy-handed, apparently, with this protest as as the police were around Standing Rock. Yes. Yeah, it's it's getting ugly at Ferry Creek. Yeah. So as you bike tour, you could go visit some places where people are standing up for Mother Earth, right? Mm-hmm. And you could talk to those people, and you could learn from those people. And if you felt inspired, you could stay for a while and take some of your bike tour vacation time at the protest site. Yeah. Right, so that would be a way they could both recreate and see beautiful places and they could learn. It's just a different model for how you do 
a tour where you're thinking about the well-being of the earth. Yeah. You're talking about connecting with what is happening on the land and what is happening in political movement. And the way that I was encouraged, and I think is also the case for so many different people of my generation um, who are privileged enough to have received an education, um, the way that we were encouraged to explore the world was you can go anywhere that you want, you can enter any space, you will be catered to, your language will be understood and spoken to you, you will be given hospitality, you will be given entertainment, and you can come back at any time that you want and resume the career of your choice. And I often think now that I've been exposed to an alternative where through living in community with people who want to challenge systems of oppression and systems of destruction that are causing the climate crisis and human rights abuses, that if we were given a different model that says, do you want to learn about the world? Go slowly. Go out and be curious. See what you can find where you are. See who you can meet, who might have something to teach you. Be humble. And yeah, I think political education is something that is totally lacking in all of the formal education that I've received and all, all of my experience since I stopped receiving formal education has been about that. And so finding the ways to connect with communities that can change our perspective so that we might return different from how we set out instead of just having our adventure, our vacation, coming back and resuming the status, right? Right, right. So we don't give up anything. Yeah. Right. And we, and so I'm white. People may not know that, who don't know me and can't see me. I'm male. I, um, I've had access to capital. The federal government says that I live below the poverty level, so I am quantified by the government as being poor. But that's a funny framework because I'm probably in the richest 5% of humans on the planet. So you're talking about all the privileges that come with the place we were born into. And people will listen to us and people will respect us and people will give us all this. And do we ever let go of any of that privilege? And are we called to let go of that privilege? Or is that privilege just? I mean, I, this is some of the underlying questions I hear you asking. Mm -hmm. So I just got a text on my phone that's relevant to this conversation. It's funny that I was just talking about Thacker Pass and within two minutes of my conversation about Thacker Pass, I get this text. Well, Thacker Pass is complicated. There are lots of ethical questions on all sides, right? This is from one of my friends who has a fancy, fabulously expensive electric car on order has put down $500 to hold one, to hold his place in line for this fancy new electric car, right? So 
not yet willing to let go of the idea that we can maintain the same exact lifestyle and all the same amount of privilege and also care for the planet. I would posit that it is impossible for the lifestyle that Ben Wise lives to be made sustainable. If I want to make my lifestyle sustainable, I need to change it so that I am consuming fewer resources. And I don't own a clothes dryer that's not, you know, out in the yard. My clothes dryer is out in the yard. I own one, but it's wind and solar powered yeah. directly, not through a PV panel on a wind turbine. So I, I, I don't know, like, how do we let go of that? And how do we find the joy in letting go of that? I think one of the questions is, I think people feel like, oh, I have to give up, right? Like it's, like it's all about the hardship of letting go. Mm-hmm. But I think as we let go of some of these privileges and some of these assumptions and some of these ideas that we can have it all, we actually find that there might be more richness and more life. So, you know, I have, I have friends who, you know, gather up all their extended family and go to Cancun on a vacation in the winter. And that's about pleasure and, and Ostensibly, there's joy in that family gathering, and there's pleasure in laying on the beach in the sun, and there's all these things that are quote-unquote good. You wouldn't go to Cancun if it wasn't good. But maybe you could let go of that framework that Cancun is where the good thing is and, and do something different. And if you're just finding a way to get rid of that money that you were going to spend on your Cancun vacation, you could... Give it to a local farmer who's struggling to pay for the land that they want to run their CSA on. You could just give the money away. Mm-hmm. Like the gift economy is a thing. <laughs> yeah. So there's all these ways that we can rethink how we operate, but we need to do it together. Yeah. And for me, the bicycle is partly just a symbol of all that. Yeah. And the electric car is a symbol of the status quo as my friend here, you know, promotes Thacker Pass as being complicated, right? We dig up the land or we don't, right? We dig up the land and we chase away the indigenous people or we don't. Right. This land was stolen or or was it stolen, right? (laughs) And so, you know, it's popular now to do land acknowledgements, right? Mm So some of the indigenous podcasts I listen to are sort of frustrated with land acknowledgments. Yeah. I have never heard any of the indigenous podcasts I listen to say they like land acknowledgments. But the, their frustration is that you do the land acknowledgement, but when push comes to shove, those damned Indians that are out at Thacker Pass need to go because we need their lithium. Right? So which is it? Are the land acknowledgments a thing that we... Re- do we really grieve the stolen land? Or do we only grieve it when it doesn't require anything of us. But if it requires us not to exploit something that's held sacred by some indigenous people, then maybe the land acknowledgement is okay if then we behave differently in our relationships. Yeah, and what is sacred to us? Yeah. What is sacred enough that we won't extract from it or we won't compromise the preservation 
and sanctity of that place in order to not have something that we think we want. Do we have, do, do we have those places? Do we have those places that we see as sacred and valuable in their own right? This time of year, as I pedal my bike around, I see so many dead snakes, right? Yeah. So the snake community is being decimated this time of year by the patterns of our lives. And it's hard for me not to grieve the snakes, yeah. right? So I heard a woman, and I wish I would have written down who this was, but I heard her say, she's a woman of color. She was either African-American or indigenous because I'm listening to voices from those communities on podcasts. But I didn't write it down, so I don't know who said it. But she said, we will never deal with white supremacy and we will never deal with male supremacy until we deal with human supremacy. Hmm. So until we see the snakes as our brother and the snake that's squashed on the road is having value, we will never get past the idea that men are better than women, that whites are better than people of color. She saw this as all tied together. And it was an aha moment for me. It's, it rings true to me, right? Yeah. But I had never been presented with that, that wisdom. Yeah. So do we have things that are sacred? Do we care about I don't think I've ever killed a snake while riding my bicycle right I've never I've never killed any animal while riding my bicycle I can see the butterflies coming in my path as I'm going down a hill and I'm like oh swerve out of their way you can see a woolly worm yeah. going across the road and you can avoid it exactly so for me there's this there's there's, there's some deeper questions does the does the ecosystem, does the earth exist to serve our needs only? Or are we supposed to have a symbiotic relationship between all the, the things that make up our ecosystem? Yeah. And culturally, we have given our answer and we've received our answer. Because the climate crisis is threatening our very ability for our species and so many others who are going before us on the front lines of the worst impacts of climate change to survive on this planet that has always given so abundantly. And so we've given our answer. We have, we are still, I read on Democracy Now! this morning that the International Monetary Fund recently finds the fossil fuel industry is subsidized $11 million per minute. Subsidized. It's already the richest, most w wealthy industry on the planet. So, Indigenous Peoples Day is next Monday. Okay. And we are... I'll be going with a group of people from Harrisonburg to Washington, D.C. to gather in a week of demonstration to call on the Biden administration to use executive order to take action on climate change. And several indigenous leaders will be coming from 
Anishinaabe land, which is colonized Minnesota, to be at that week of demonstration and speak to the people and join in demonstration. And I think about what you were saying about the sacrifices that we might have to make to change our lifestyle and how we often feel that we're going into this alone. Like I'm sitting here staring at all my vices and all the things that I rely on that I know are harming people and that I know ultimately aren't in alignment with my values, but I feel like it's on me alone to disentangle myself from every single one. And that is not true. Like you said earlier, we need to be together in our evolution beyond the white and human-centric dominance that we have lived into, that we've inherited on this colonized, stolen land. And when we talk about what we have to sacrifice, that doesn't have to be a loss. We make sacrifices in religious traditions as a way of marking the sanctity of something. We make sacrifices to remind ourselves of what is sacred. And in giving, like you were saying about giving money away or giving our sacrifice, that is how we receive. That is how we become, we bring ourselves into relationship with the give and take of life, the give and take of all the relationships that sustain life in an ecosystem on the planet. You know, we can't just take, 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 and never give back. So it's actually such a gift for us to be able to give and for us to be able to sacrifice, to feel our humanity, to feel what is sacred, and to live in the fullness of being alive on this planet, being in relationship to life. That is such a beautiful way that you have articulated it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I love it. And I agree completely. Like, I think community is going to be a big part of the answer. And nobody knows what this is going to look like going forward. Um, So people who come from the Christian religious tradition might be familiar with this idea of the road to Damascus where the, uh, the Apostle Paul had this vision and it changed his, his, his trajectory, right? It changed how he was, he was oppressing and killing and doing all this destructive stuff. And he had this moment and he changed, right? So I want to hold out the possibility that that could happen collectively to a large swath of people in our society. And if, if there's sort of this collective change in our paradigm, which could happen, right? I want, I, want, I want to believe that it can happen. If there's sort of this collective awakening um, and this change in our paradigm, and then we start to together live into new patterns, 
we can change the world radically. Although a person I've paid a little attention to lately is a, a gentleman named Stephen Jenkinson. And he said, in the society we live in, it is impossible to awaken in this moment without awakening with a sob. And it seems true to me, if you really awaken to who we are, you awaken with a sob. But then you don't have to stay there, right? You can accept the grief of the awakening. And then together we can find ways to move into a place where we laugh and where we make the sacrifices that are an expression of our deeply held convictions and where we find joy in the community of doing these things together. Mm-hmm. What more is there even to say? <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thanks for being on this this podcast and being in conversation with us today. This did me did me good. I appreciate the time with you, Amelia. So, uh, I have a website. It's wisecycles.com, and that is spelled with a Y. Um, you can do just a general search for Harrisonburg Bike Shops, and you'll find me. Um, but don't come over here with your fancy $20,000 mountain bikes and ask us to work on it. Yeah, them. so I had a guy that brought me a $12,000 like fancy bike with electric shifting. So there's motors in the derailleurs and there's a battery in the bike that runs the derailleurs. It's this ridiculous toy, right? And I don't want to disrespect someone, but I figured out what was wrong. I called the manufacturer and figured out what needed to be done. I told him everything that needed to be done, but I told him, I don't want to work on your bike. But now you can go to some other bike shop and you can tell them, this is what's wrong. This is what we need to do. This is the spec we're shooting for. But I just, I couldn't, like, I just couldn't bring myself to work on his $12,000 toy. <laughs> so anyways, that's not, that's not my framework. But if you have like a mid nineties mountain bike that you want to fix up into a commuter, I'm your guy. <laughs> yeah. And and nobody else can really do that. Like the other bike shops, this is the the important thing to say is like the other bike shops would be like, throw that bike away. Right, right. Before COVID, there was actually another one of the bike shops in town who would periodically bring me a van load of stuff that they were gonna throw away because they knew I would fix it. Yeah. And so they knew that their trash was my treasure. And so, uh, you know, that's nice. But since COVID like came along and changed the bike industry, people are throwing less stuff away and that's good. Yeah. So yes, I, I do more salvaging of stuff than other people. And it's partly because I'm willing to work for less compensation, a lower profit margin because to do that stuff, it's not as profitable. Anyways, I love doing that stuff and I love to help people with that stuff and figure out what works for them and, and try to squeeze out enough uh, income that I can support my wife and kids. Yeah, <laughs> and do all the other cool things that your family yeah. does. Yeah, so it's fun. All right, well, I'm gonna stop it here, but the people have heard that they can get both great conversation and great service on their bikes to make a better But lifestyle. I might be a complete grump if they want to preach the, the, the vision of the electric car as our savior. Yeah. 
I, I just, and I'm not interested in the debate about whether or not that's true, because that's not the space I'm in, wanting to debate whether or not this will save us 10 or 20 years from now. We'll see how this plays out. But it's just what I feel to be true. And I'm not interested in like arguing. It's not a helpful thing for my own spirit to argue about these things. Right. So I'm interested in finding a community of people who are, who are ready to explore different paradigms that are not just the status quo. So if you want to be part of that community, you can get a hold of Amelia or me, and we can start that movement locally. Yeah, we'll link you up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you, all you lovely beings for listening. As you know, by tuning in and sharing this podcast, you are yourself becoming a pollinator of ideas and voices that bring the fruit of greater collective wholeness. Thank you for doing your work as a cultural worker bee. What is cultural work? Cultural work helps us witness, understand, and articulate the ongoing development of culture as a practice of artistic and intellectual labor. And without the power to name, we lack the power to tame. So use the power of your voice, your body, and the privileges afforded to both to shape culture and the eco-social conditions that grow from it. How do I do that? You might be asking. Well, I'm glad you asked. There are many ways. You can join a powerful action organized by a coalition of pipeline fighters Saturday, December 11th in Richmond, Virginia, 1 p.m. to hold vigil over the harm perpetrated to the waters along the route of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. For one, each body will represent one of the 235 streams threatened by the interruption of sacredness that is putting a 42-inch natural gas pipeline into forest-fed soil and karst topography. Additionally, you can feed your mind, body, and spirit by attending one of our Friday night wild cooking collective meals or joining our shelf discovery breakfast and book club, where we'll start meeting next week. You can find links to all of these offerings in the show notes. But in the meantime, do your own research about an issue you feel is important. Find out what BIPOC social justice leaders and practitioners are calling for and get involved. And for all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.